Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode eight of Healing the Divide podcast. I'm so grateful to be in this episode today and um, speaking about the 2024 election and getting beyond the echo chamber. We have a panel of guests today, um, really approaching it almost like a focus group in a sense of um, having four people who have very different perspectives and, and some aligned perspectives as well, um, but really represent a, a cross um, section of beliefs politically. And they have all agreed to be here and talk to each other in a way that supports the intention of this podcast, which of course is Healing the Divide. For those of you that know me or have been listeners of the show, you're familiar that the intention here is to take the tools that have proven powerful in the inner work healing journey um, over the last 20 years of, of my life and start to apply them into contexts where they are so often lacking and so sorely needed. A big one, of course, is politics. So today we dive into all the nuance we're going to get into domestic policy, foreign policy, electoral process, two-party system. We're going to dive into the candidates. We're going to get into uh, Russia, Ukraine, Israel, Palestine. We're going to get into the economy. We're going to get into immigration. Uh, we're going we're gonna to go for it. We're going to even take a little look back over the last um, four and eight years of the last two presidential terms. We're going to look at COVID policy, social movements, really where we're at as a country from a handful of different perspectives. And we're going to share ideas in a way that honors the diversity of viewpoints and a willingness to dialogue across them. So thank each of you for being here. I'm going to take a moment to introduce each of our four guests today. So I'll share an introduction. And then if you're comfortable, please just share a couple of words and and then we'll we'll make our way through. So this is in no particular order. So first, Jerry Rosenthal. Jerry is a highly accomplished and now retired labor law trial attorney representing unions for more than 50 years, an alum of the University of Florida, where UF Law has recognized him with the Gerald A. Rosenthal Chair in Labor and Employment Law. Jerry spent his professional career as a dedicated champion of the people, passionate about preserving the civil rights of laborers. He's a Vietnam veteran, a father, and someone I am proud to call a friend of over 20 years. Politically, Jerry is a dedicated supporter of the Democratic Party. He believes the Democratic Party is built around issues of women's reproductive rights, immigration, and the economy. In his words, that is the pillar we stand on, but we also understand that all politics are local and how we instill an understanding of these three issues into the daily lives of American citizens is how we continue to grow the party. In his view, aid to Israel and Ukraine is paramount. In Jerry's view, these issues frame how our country grows in a united way. Jerry, thank you for joining us. Well, it was a lot of fun. Um... And I always use the mantra that all politics are local, but politics are dynamic and what goes up comes down. So it'll be very interesting to kind of parse all of it and see where we go from that. Absolutely. We appreciate you being here and sharing your, your experience through 
all of life. And, uh, and, and so moving to our second guest, I want to introduce Jane McNeil. Jane McNeil is a 15 plus year sports industry veteran and highly accomplished media strategist. Jane is currently the senior vice president of player communications at Live Golf, where she helped launch the international startup in 2021. Prior to Live Golf, she worked as Greg Norman's publicist and head of communications for the Greg Norman company and his portfolio of global brands for nearly a decade. Jane has extensive experience working with high profile talent and senior executives with deep roots in PR, brand marketing, media training, and crisis communications. In Jane's words, I don't necessarily identify with any one political party, but certainly lean right in my overall view socially and from a government affairs perspective. I believe in states' rights over federal intervention. I believe in small government and am very much a constitutionalist. I am a firm believer in America first and a staunch Trump supporter. The systematic desecration of our country over the last four years is part of something much bigger and far more sinister than most Americans realize. And from the MAGA movement, these words, the American way of life is under attack while career politicians destroy our economy and sabotage our nation's incredible potential. We will take our country back from the corrupt Washington establishment and return power to the American people where it belongs. Jane, thank you so much for being here. Sorry. Um, yeah, no, I don't have anything to add to that. Thanks, Scott. Uh, okay. Thank you so much. And next, I want to introduce Vanessa Nedvins. Vanessa's answer at age four to what she wanted to be when she grew up was the president of the United States. (laughs) (laughs) While she now works in operational strategy by day, her home office is not quite an oval one. She remains a student of the U.S. politics and can often be found opening up conversations with people about their views, especially opposing ones, and the way humanity fits into political decisions. Self-described as moderate, Vanessa seeks to find balance in her place in the now largely polarized political space, knowing that there is no perfect solution to our decades-old problems, while also acknowledging the culture and relative youth of the United States alongside our flawed electoral system as root causes of much of what we see. She believes it's hard to hate up close and seeks opportunities to connect with people of different perspectives and an opportunity to learn and understand. Outside of her penchant for politics, Vanessa can be found on a yoga mat, singing her heart out on a cycling bike, playing with her dog Griffin, and generally looking for ways to enjoy the depths of this beautiful life. Vanessa, thank you for being here. Thanks for the invitation, Scott. I'm really excited to uh, to continue the conversations that I know folks want to have on a larger scale and start to normalize conversations between people with differing views in a respectful way. Yeah, absolutely. I I share the same sentiment and hoping that we, um, you know, really have an opportunity for that today. And so um, coming to our fourth guest, uh, Dr. Lance Wilson is a physician who had some interest in politics in his 30s, including some ideas that he might run for school board or city council and start a political career of his own. 
Ultimately, he decided not to do that and focused on family and career. For the last 20 years or so, he has been fairly uninterested in politics, feeling disgruntled about the widening gap of ideals and generally only having two party options. He has been a registered libertarian for a long time, and his votes for president when he has voted have been for Democrats, Republicans, and Libertarians. He's very excited about the possibility of having a viable third candidate with RFK, and as a result, um, uh, has spent more time recently getting to know the key issues and where the candidates stand on them. Lance, thank you so much for being here. It looks like we maybe lost Lance. All right, so we're going to keep the conversation moving. Hopefully Lance will be able to jump back in and join us here. I thought what would be helpful as a starting point for this conversation is an opportunity for each of you to be able to um, take a few words to maybe take two minutes each uh, to share what you see as the state of U.S. politics in this moment, the state of the electoral system, the pressing issues of this moment, and why you're choosing the candidate you're choosing to address them. So we'll start this with Jane. So please go ahead and and thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I'd say if I could summarize the state of American politics in this current landscape, it would be broken um, from top to bottom. You know, although I, I am a Trump supporter, I don't think that I don't think that there's anything right in the state of our politics right now. Um, the divisiveness that has been created um, is has left the country unrecognizable. Um, I was 16 years old during 9-11, and I remember following that, the cohesiveness that was created within our country and how it didn't matter if you were right, left, or in the middle. Everyone was an American at that time. And I remember, although it was a tragedy, looking back on that time with like so much peace and love in my heart and so much pride for my country and standing shoulder to shoulder uh, with everybody. We were all just Americans. And I look at this now and I don't feel like any of us are Americans. I feel like we all are so aligned to our one political party or to our one political candidate. Um, You know, it's just left the country in such a a horrible place that um, I fear for its future. So I am a Trump supporter because as we mentioned in the intro, I really at the heart of things feel that the government should not be in charge of making decisions for us. I feel like we should return everything to states' rights. I feel like we should um, go back to the Constitution as it was written by our founding fathers. They had so much foresight and were so ahead of their time. Um, And it's what laid the foundation for the most incredible country in the world. And we've gotten so far away from that. So in my political views, if we're able to find a return to that and a return to unity as Americans, then we can find a path forward. Thank you so much. So well said. Uh, I appreciate you sharing your perspective. Let's um, hop over to Vanessa. And um, if you don't mind, your your 
your analysis on the state of political affairs and what candidate you're supporting as of now and why? Sure. So this is um, a very layered, I suppose, nuanced question as most of politics um, certainly is. I, I agree with Jane in that our country is very, very broken. Um, and so when I think about who I'm supporting, um, it's more as a result of a flawed two-party electoral system where we don't have an opportunity to have a third and fourth party, potentially, as you see with other, um, you know, first world countries, if we really want to talk about it that way. So, and and many not first world countries in that same sense. And so um, I will reluctantly uh, be voting for Joe Biden, although I would really prefer that he step aside and let another Democrat, a younger not career politician, um, someone with experience, because I think that's been proven to be important, but not, you know, vested interest in the deep pockets of uh, major corporations who are raking in billions of dollars from, you know, the decisions that are being made by legislature. I was joking with somebody yesterday that I have more um, of a conflict of interest policy with my private company that I work for than it seems that our Congress people have with the large billion dollar companies about which they're they're creating legislature. Um, so I think that's that's something that needs to be said and needs to be talked about as we try to heal our country is that I I think at one point two-party system made sense. I think at this point in our growth as a country and our development as a country, um, it needs to evolve. I struggle with the idea that the U.S. is the greatest country in the world, given this, the way that we are today, given the rights we're stripping from people, the way that we are not protecting um, humanitarian needs, the way we allow our folks to go hungry and in need and yet invest in larger corporations, billions of dollars in tax breaks and other countries. So right now I'm having um, a really hard time believing that that this is the best place but I know it's where I am and I know that there's capacity for change in conversations like. Thank you so much, Jerry. Well, I think we'll all agree that, that politics are broken and government is broken. Um, but I'm the old man here. I've been, I'm 78 years old and I've lobbied at the Congress for a good 20 or 25 years. It was interesting that when I represented the Democratic Party and the trial lawyers, I was able to go to the Democratic congressman, pitch my pitch, and get an agreement, and then go to the Republican side and pitch my pitch and get an agreement. So we got things done. Now, government is so polarized that if the Democratic Party put out the greatest bill ever, the Republicans are going to kill it. And vice versa, if the Republicans do that, the Democrats will kill it. What's, what, what's happened now, and the result of this, is the average person, I've always told you that all politics are local, the average person, the plumber, the pipe fitter, the teacher, they ignore politics. They're only concerned about the price of eggs, of whether or not they can get from the gas station to the job. And all of this media hype that backbiting that's fighting between both parties is ignored by us. And and I really believe, I really believe that there will be a tipping point when people get so angry at this, this inaction, this non-governing country that we're involved in. 
is that I think there will be a landslide one way or the other when people just get fed up. And, you know, I don't buy into the, the cult of MAGA. I believe in people understanding their needs and what they want out of life. And if they like what Trump does, God bless them. If they like what Biden does, which I believe, God bless them. But there's going to come a point where people just get tired of this backbiting. Thank you so much, Jerry. I I appreciate um, each of the perspectives that you guys are sharing and can start to see the, the, the delineation amongst them, but also the alignment within them. And, uh, and I appreciate the, the shared passion that I can feel inside of everybody as well. So um, that said, I would love to uh, offer this up to Lance. Um, and Lance, if you're available to share in your calculus, what is the state of American political affairs um, and and why do you think the candidate that you're choosing is positioned well to address those those issues? Yeah, I hope you all can hear me now. Yeah, we're good. Real challenges. Sorry about that. Uh, so before I answer that question, Scott, um, and I'm sorry I didn't hear everybody's um, intro, but for me, it's I even want to go back and, and not even talk about politics um, for a moment and just to talk about you know, who we are and what we are as a country, because I've heard some people say, you know, we're the greatest country in the world. Um, we were, I'm not sure we are now. Um, my personal belief, because I don't know who we are as a country anymore. I don't know what we do as a country. I don't know what we create as a country. And so um, for me, that's the struggle I've had with, with politics in general and why I haven't really been super excited about any candidate for a while, because it just seems like more of the same, more of the same, more of the same. And, you know, when I look at what we create in this country, it's, it's entertainment. Um, it's more government, it's more healthcare. And, um, frankly, you know, we've become the police of the world and I'm not a fan of any of those directions. Um, and so when I think about what I want for the future and for my children and their children and and really for what, you know, we could be as as the greatest country in the world again is is to decide who we want to be. And and for me, my candidate in this election is, is RFK Jr. Um, because he is a, a new perspective, a new voice uh, that's quite different. Um, and really more, in my opinion, in the middle, which is where I've always been, because I think we've gotten farther and farther apart. And if there's a candidate that that feels more in the middle, that's where I've uh, tended to land. And so his um, his stance on, you know, our involvement in U.N. and foreign wars is exactly what I believe. Um, his stance on bringing up those dollars that are being spent uh, for, for those activities back into this country, um, his stance on um, disaggregating uh, big business and the regulatory um, agencies that 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 observe them uh, there's there's a lot of commingling of people that go back and forth between big pharma say and and the NIH um, of big AG and the USDA uh, so uh, that I love 
Um, and you know, there's no perfect candidate. Um, I don't love everything he says, but, uh, but for me, it's about the future, about what we want to be as a country and, and spreading our wealth and spreading our military might across the world is some, something that I'm not a fan of. And so any, anyone that's talking about ending that and bringing that back in, in, in house is, is my guy. And so that's why I'm the main reason why I'm, um, supporting RFK at this point. Thank you so much, Lance. I, I appreciate the, the content, but also the tone, the tenor with which you, you share and, um, and a lot of good points, but amongst the four of you guys that you brought up. So I, I, I think, a a great next movement into this conversation to dial it in a little bit closer would be to actually look at the electoral process itself. A few of you guys had presence that there are certain issues that you have with it, whether that's the two-party system, the campaign finance um, <laughs> challenges, I'll say, that we have, where we really have corporate capture of our electoral process in so many ways. And and really, I guess a, a bigger question is like, do elected officials even have ultimate power or is it just something even bigger than revolving door politics that behind that there is a, do you see there's a uniparty? Do you see that um, that the corporate entrenchment into politics um, through super PACs, through the Citizens United um, passing that this is changing the, the, the dynamic where, where it appears that we have more freedom to vote but is real change actually happening? And do the candidates that you support, do you feel like they, they potentially speak to these challenges? And do you even view these as challenges? So in your own estimation, what are the challenges with the electoral process in specificity? And, you know, Lance, I think you just kind of spoke to that. Here's somebody that's trying to break up that. Um, and so, Dialing it in a, in a little more detail, how do you each view the challenges and issues with our electoral process itself? Let's start with uh, Jane. A lot to unpack and everything you just said. I think we could spend two hours just talking about that. But um, for me, um, as, a, as a Trump supporter, I think my biggest issue is the ownership of politics from the media, from corporate media. I think it's been, um, you know, it's funny in preparation for this discussion, I wanted to go ahead and pull up talking points from both sides so that I could come prepared and really understand the viewpoints of both ahead of time. And when you Google, you know, talking points from the Democratic Party or talking points from Joe Biden, you get a laundry list of results in support of that. If you Google talking points for Trump supporters, all you get is should I break my friendship with a Trump supporter? Should I break up with my boyfriend who's a Trump supporter? How to have a civil conversation with a Trump supporter? How to, like, it was, I couldn't find one piece of anything in favor of Trump. And if that just tells you in like a very small microcosm of the ownership of just digital media alone of the Democratic Party, that for me speaks volumes. I mean, even like Fox News, which is considered, you know, right leaning, they still aren't, they're still bought and paid for by a much bigger animal, if you will. Um, so when you were kind of talking about um, corporate, you know, 
buying and paying for politics and whether it's what Lance was discussing, like uh, corporations entrenched with uh, governmental organizations. I I firmly believe that there's, as I said in the opening statement, there's something much bigger and much more sinister going on behind closed doors. I think that a lot of these candidates are Manchurian candidates. I don't think that, um, I don't think it's just them up there. There's something much, much bigger behind them, a much bigger animal. Which, again, goes back to why I support Trump, because he was anti-establishment. He did not come from Washington. He did not come from politics. And that's why everyone hates him so much, is because he is the guy that's trying to break up what's been created behind the scenes and behind closed doors and create real and meaningful change. And in his four years, his term, he was able to enact real change, but was attacked for it the entire time from this animal, from the government animal, from the corporate animal, and now from the legal side of things. So yeah, I don't think that, uh, I don't think what you see is what you get. I think there's a lot more going on behind the scenes. Yeah, thank you for that, Jane. It's interesting. I was just, uh, I just concluded an eight week online container with people of diverse political viewpoints, um, where each week we got together and dissected a different issue and it was incredible. And when we got into the piece on media and social media and, and especially starting to peel back the majority ownership in these corporations, whether it's media, whether it's military industrial complex, um, right down the line, big pharma, you know, you could, you could pull back the last veil and it's, it's BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, managing pensions, influencing whether it's DEI policy or something else, and then shifting media narratives. And you can see how the money kind of flows. So I want to get into all of that with you guys, get your thoughts on it. Um, but I wanted to share from the piece of when we even say Google it, right? Um, I, uh, it, it's interesting that we did a, a little exercise. I had them uh, Google Missouri v. Biden, to look up the case on the Biden administration's influence in social media governance when we got into COVID policy and looking at, you know, misinformation, malinformation, disinformation, demonetization, deplatforming. And if you type it in to, to um, Google, you would get Missouri V and you'd have all these things that weren't Biden. It was just other random cases. But if you put it into DuckDuckGo as a different app, it's the first five that pull up. And it's, and it, and it, and so I think it's subtle the way that um, government um, whether whether media is an extension of the various political parties and it's like a propagandized arm of it, um, or it's that media <laughs> or the government is is acting out. It, it's almost it doesn't matter. Is, is it this two different arms coming from the same body? So I think this is a point to, for us to all get into. Um, but I would love to hear a response to that uh, from Jerry, um, given that it it seems like you might be in a different camp. And so it to to open up what your perspectives after hearing all of that might be. Well, again, talking like an old man, uh, I think the biggest uh, the biggest obstacle um, to political thought is technology. And technology is growing exponentially. And so back in the day, 
I always watched CNN because it was such a ballast thing. NBC was great. CBS was great. Fox is great. Fast forward to now. Fox is a liberal, a conservative shill for Trump and the Republicans. MSNBC, a shill for Biden and the Democrats. And, and so if you plug in artificial intelligence and you see so much media hype, um, the average person just gets caught up in there and they drown in it. And they don't they don't think for themselves because they watch Fox or they watch MSNBC and they buy in to the misinformation or the half truth. Um, and that's surrounded by other media uh, input as well. Um, I, I guess that. There may come a point in time where just people get so tired of this, tired of this political back and forth. They just turn it off between that and I believe me, I would love for Citizens United to be repealed so we could have true political debate. But now we don't. And again, the media is the biggest to me, the the biggest obstacle to true political thought. They try and, and misdirect you from true thought about what's happening in our government. And that's a big deal. That's a big deal. I think we might have found a point of agreement amongst everybody in the role in media. So we really, I, I feel like we're onto something um, really incredible in, in this day and age um, with the capacity to consume, and this might be a positive of tech, the, possibility, the, the possibility to consume independent media. Um, to not just, I almost find it's like a little lazy to just sit back and turn on the TV and say, I'm trying to get both sides. So I'm going to flip back and forth between MSNBC and Fox instead of proactively, you know, seeking, I keep a list of, um, for people of independent media resources and say, this is, you know, it's just every TV is a smart TV pretty much now. You can easily hop on Rumble um, if you know, if you're not aware, Rumble is a is an uncensored version of YouTube, essentially, because um, get YouTube owned by Google. Um, but it's an opportunity to um, take in different viewpoints, independent voices, and really support a free media. If you look at how people are really consuming media, the intake of podcasts, especially 45 and under. It can actually give you guys a breakdown um, by age. Um, So Edison Research Poll um, of 18 to 34-year-olds, they are um, consuming specifically news 50% through podcasts and 50% through television. 35 to 54-year-olds, 39% podcasts, 61% 61% television, 55 plus, 14% podcast, 74% television, 12% other, I'm thinking maybe like newspapers and various things like that. And so you can start to see as we continue to, to age and this platform becomes more entrenched, it's going to be podcasts. And especially what I love about what we're doing today 
long form podcast. The idea that two people can come on of differing views and basically hit a bunch of talking points and, and sound bites, talk over each other and then clip to the next thing seems to perpetuate the endless cycle of distraction and lack of depth and polarization. And so when we put somebody together for two hours and you can't just say a bunch of buzzwords and you get to actually hear a conversation and feel into a human being's energy, do they feel honest? Do they feel sincere? Do they keep repeating the same things every time I hear them or are they just speaking off the cuff? And, and so I think this is, um, this is refreshing to hear, you know, some, some maybe alliance here in, in the need to shift the role that media plays and, and, and also not just the co-opting of media, but the value it's the opportunity cost, the value that media represents is part of our checks and balance system. It's, it's, it's journalists that were designed to be the objective reporters of what's happening. And so when things like trusted news initiative or center for American progress um, or, you know, any of the um, sort of politically leaning um, organizations infiltrate into the news and collectivize it into a, a singular homogenous voice, we've, we've lost the benefit of journalism in my estimation. So I would love to, um, Vanessa, hear your thoughts on what you're hearing so far, and then we'll kick it over to Lance after that. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think media has so many far-reaching impacts. And I think the one thing I didn't hear you talk about too much, Scott, is social media. And so we look at, you know, these instances where we have 30 seconds to understand something that flies by us. And we have no context for that 30 seconds. And whatever that 30 seconds tells us is what we go with. Um, and I think that becomes very dangerous because as you just mentioned about long form podcasts, the value is understanding the context. So you have these, whatever it is on Instagram, a minute long reels, let's say that are espousing whatever for whomever, and they have these clips and they have these talking points and they move on. That's okay. If that's how you want to get your news and that source is trusted, but now you've got AI making and creating things that are really hard to differentiate from reality. You have misinformation, disinformation, malinformation, and you're asking a society that today is simply worried about how they're getting food on their table for their kids and the hours that they're working and the things that they're doing to stay alive to go spend extra time to dissect what is real, what is fake, what is true, what is the context, and then expect them to go make an informed decision at the poll with only generally two viable candidates to choose from. Or perhaps you have three viable candidates to choose from. I personally voted libertarian in 2016, um, but they don't have the same uh, exposure in media. They don't have the same exposure on social media. They don't have ex the same exposure as others uh, in the Democratic or Republican parties to actually have their voices heard to make for a viable third party candidate that could win, right? So you end up in this situation where you may fully believe with, with um, whatever that third party candidate says. I think RFK has some great points. Marion Williamson has some great points. Uh, Gary Johnson and Bill Weld had some great points back in 2016. 
but you always have this lingering feeling of it's only a two-party system and independence not going to win, right? And then you get these continual comments of, well, a vote for anybody but this person or that person is a vote for the worst of them. And so whoever that worst is based on based on your opinions, right? And 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 what that person is sharing with you. And so I think when we look at the media and we look at all of those factors and then add one more technological factor, which is um, the algorithms that are used, whether it's in Google, whether it's in social media. Um, I had my mom actually, God bless her, send me this wild conspiracy theory on Instagram recently. And my mom's a very intelligent woman. And and what happened was something came into her feed and she started looking at it and then she was fed more of it. And it just moved from, let's call it center to a step away, a step away, a further step away. And then all of a sudden she was well down um, a significant rabbit hole and she was absolutely terrified paralyzed with fear over over the situation and the reality is it's it's not as big as it was made to be but because the algorithm kept putting it in her face or because we have a 24-hour news cycle that repeats the same thing over and over and over you don't get the space to think or understand or critically analyze if you even have the mental and emotional margin to do that because of the way that media is designed. And so while I agree media ownership, media perspective is huge, it's also the way that we are consuming media in the context of our day-to-day and what we are responsible for as citizens in this country to try to understand about what we're consuming feels like an additional burden we're putting on people where it should be easier to get something objective and unbiased than it is. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Vanessa. Yeah, so well said. And it is embedded into the algorithm. And the idea that these are even separate entities, if you start to peel back the curve, I mentioned Center for American Progress Media Matters, TNI. If you're not familiar and you're listening, look up Trusted News Initiative. It is a coming together of BBC, Google, YouTube, Microsoft, Washington Post, Uh, Meta, including Facebook, Instagram, AP, amongst many others, together collectively, these members hold over 90% of the overall social media market, over 90% of the social networking market, over 75% of the video hosting market, over 90% of the search engine market. So the idea that we can just, oh, I'll hop on here and, you know, get to truth, it's so embedded in, in my perception that uh, you know, I agree with what you, what you both you all have shared so far in this piece. Um, so it really does take a sifting through um, to, it, because you know, how, look at the words that comes with trusted news initiative. It's like, we'll tell you that we're trusted. That's a, that's a good sign. First off, like, wait a second. You, you can believe everything I say.com, you know, it's like that should give you a little pause. Um, so Lance, I want to hear your thoughts, not just on like agreement, disagreement, but you, you had shared in like starting to do more research, starting to come back in to the fray a little bit in, in the presence of RFK showing up as a independent voice, um, largely building his candidacy through social media, 
pot, tons and tons and tons of podcast interviews. You know, he got, I think, a little bit of a boost up front, um, you know, when he was running against Biden as a Democrat before he shifted independent Fox was platforming platforming him that changed on a dime as soon as he went independent and maybe until the Super Bowl ad the other day had we haven't seen him much on the uh, box on the wall aka the TV um, so how do you go about in your research coming back into all of this ascertaining truth versus fiction or getting caught in these algorithmic silos? I probably do it like most people um, in sound bites because I don't have the time and energy to devote to really going deep on all the candidates. Um, so I'll be honest about that. Um, but I think, you know, everything that's been said, I agree with. I, I haven't watched the news in, I, I don't remember how long, um, if I ever even really watched the news, because I had a sense a long time ago when I was very young that they called it programming for a reason. And so I have not, um, and my life has been better, frankly. I think I've suffered less because I haven't consumed that stuff for a long period of my life. Um, because I, you know, what I see in the little sound bites are, as everyone's described here, um, you know, very, again, very polarized, uh, you, you know, talking about unity, talking about coming together, talking about coming to the middle um, doesn't get people's emotions going. Um, or it doesn't get the, the, the intense emotions going, I would say it maybe differently. And so, um, I, I, I have seen what I've seen, um, on social media, but I'm not active on social media either. I don't consume much of that. Um, so, you know, you can say I'm uninformed. Um, but what I'm doing is I'm doing introspective self, you know, self, uh, work to understand what are my core values and then with the little bits that I know about the candidates and 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 frankly the history that we've had in the last you know probably 50 years in this country uh you know where I would like to go and and so when I see something that really touches my heart which RFK does that's that's why I really en enjoy what he's having to say and and I'm excited about the possibility of at least having a conversation. I love what you said, Vanessa, uh, because, you know, I would love to see three viable candidates up on a stage talking about issues. Right. I, I you know, even just Democrats, you know, when when RFK was was probably going to be a Democrat before he announced his independency, you know, wanting to get on stage and, and debate with Joe Biden. And, you know, there was. There was no support to do so on the Democratic side. Um, you know, the way we've done this in the past with with, you know, the two parties having debates, um, but rarely having people come together uh, to, to talk about the issues and to really see people like we're doing here, long format. Um, do I trust this person? Do I believe them? Do they keep saying the same things over and over? All the things that you just said, Scott, I would love to see, you know, two or three hours of three candidates um, being asked tough questions and and seeing how they answer those questions. So, um, you know, we kind of started this with, you know, the two party system and the electoral process. We've gravitated towards media, but it, we know it's so involved. Um, but it's it's big business, too, frankly. And so, you know, what are they? They're, they're trying to make money. They're trying to get market share. And so they're going to they're going to put out the stuff that's going to attract viewers 
that will then what? Um, allow them to see the ads that are running on those uh, those programs, um, which are largely pharmaceutical now, which as a physician, I, I detest. I think that's disgusting. So yeah, media has not been really in my consciousness. I, I'm, I'm not... Um, I'm not consuming that on a, on any kind of a regular basis, but I am getting my information like most people in this country, probably in little sound bites. And, and, and then also I'll just say, you know, typically what we all do is we, regardless of the algorithms, we tend to consume the things that reinforce our beliefs mm -hmm. instead of looking at really critically the exact opposite point of view. And if more people would do that, I think we'd have a much deeper discussion. Absolutely. Lance, I want to stay with you and pick up on this thread of pharmaceuticals, um, the the capture, uh, of really that, that closed loop of media, big pharma, politics. And this has felt like to me personally, the biggest issue of this campaign and, and my biggest fear. My son asked me yesterday, he said, so many people, when they speak out against RFK, it's they want to go right to anti-vax, which actually is sort of lazy because that's he's not even anti-vax. You know how many times he has to say that, but um, to you know to to really listen to him speak about it is is something different. But he said, I wonder how much of a needle mover like vaccines and, and vaccine mandates and all of that even is anymore for people. And I shared with him to me this is the actually the number one issue. Um, and it's not just about vaccines or medical autonomy or, or something. It's, it's about what started to feel totalitarian, that there was like an, an authoritarian, you will do this or you will not walk into this building. You will shut down your business. You will knock it on the foot. And then there's like this public shaming. Um, and it started to feel, and not, you know, I, you know, the, you know, it feels starts to feel almost like, a division of like um, the the vaccinated and the unvaccinated and the, and you start to kind of see this whole thing and it was in the name of follow the science and then the science comes out and it's like, okay, well, it turns out that that's not true. That's not true. It did start there in the lab. It doesn't stop the virus from spreading. The masks don't work as intended. All these things. And, and so when I look at a, a candidate like RFK, he really rose to more public recognition right now because he spoke out against this um, but was first demonetized deplatformed um, and then he learned that you can't censor a presidential candidate so he went into politics and um, and has had some success with this so what is your view on we'll start with Lance on set first off the 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 follow the science as a doctor and um were we following the science were, were doctors actually were their voices suppressed and and then i would love to use this as a lead in to hear everybody's view on where you stand on censorship is it necessary at particular times are you a free speech absolutist where anything goes and we can take this as a foray not only in around covid um, and the idea of sort of the totalitarian state and when is it essential? Because when who's the arbiter of what's hate and what's not hate? And this to me brings us directly into Israel-Palestine, which is where I wanted to go. 
next because we've seen obviously the protests in the college campuses. We've seen the presidents go up before Senate uh, for the Congress. And so um, where do you stand on um, free speech censorship and, and what's your take on what's happening in our country right now? Okay, well, if we're going to go back and talk about kind of the the dark times of the spring of 2020 and how that led to the couple years that followed, uh, you know, I want to say that people were scared. The media contributed to that without a doubt uh, because that's all that was on and it was really the worst possible scenarios. Uh, so people were scared and and people didn't know what to do. And that includes our politicians and our government. You know, nobody had the answer here. Uh, and it's not surprising that we, you know, went off the path, back on the path, off the path, back on the path. I mean, that's kind of what we do through life. Uh, I think there there was science. There, there were some small studies initially that supported, um, you know, the, the, the use of the vaccine in this case for some portions of the population. Uh, but the, the numbers were small and the way they were presented as percentages of percentages really inflates um, the numbers. So, you know, we can get into, you know, scientific paper methodology and how those things are reported. But, but you know, what I experienced and I, I made a difficult choice. I was a president of a medical group and I made the choice not to get vaccinated for a few reasons. Uh, one was I didn't think that we had an, enough long-term evidence that it was safe and effective because it was so new and it was, it, was, it was created very, very quickly. And historically, there's never been a safe, effective RNA vaccine, period. And I would say we still are in that situation. Um, I don't think it was safe and I don't think it was particularly effective for what it was being touted to be effective for, which was which was to spread. Like if you're gonna, you get this and you'll keep people safe. Um, so uh, we had some science, um, but um, why it happened the way it did, I don't know. You know, I, I could get into some nefarious schemes about you know bailouts of pharma and bailouts of of the healthcare system and things like that. But but frankly, you know, we were doing what we thought was right at the time, most people. Um, but for me, it came down to uh, medical autonomy, the word you used. And um, many people, even though they weren't forced, there was tremendous pressure, myself included, in, in our state. Um, our governor made a mandate that everyone that worked in a hospital must be vaccinated, right? And, and to me, that would be like... Um, saying everybody must take this medicine or everybody must have this surgical procedure. So it was, it was very, as you were use the word totalitarian. Um, but, you know, I don't fault any, um, any party, um, any individual leader, um, even any group of leaders, because this was a very complicated uh, experience that none of us had ever experienced before. Um, well, at least in the modern world with, with media. So um, the, the censorship issue, maybe we'll come back to it, but um, I wouldn't say that I'm an absolutist with, with free speech. Um, there has to be some line in the sand, uh, but, but to be able to quantify or qualify uh, what's misinformation um, is very difficult. Now, hate speech is one thing, but saying 
this is misinformation um, is incorrect. And 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 I just want to say one more thing before I turn it over about RFK. If you if you really are interested in what he believes and and the work he's done, frankly, for um, you know close to two decades on vaccine injuries, is to just go listen to his three hour interview on the Joe Rogan experience because Joe gave him a long time, more than anyone that I've heard to explain his stance. And, um, and he's not anti-vax. Uh, he is, he, he wants the same, um, regulatory and the same, um, uh, duration of time necessary to approve other medical, uh, uh pharmaceuticals and other medical devices to be applied to vaccines, which right now doesn't happen. Um, and, um, he has a lot of evidence that the things that we've done to uh, our children in with, with good intent um, have been harmful. You know, we look at medications that come out, it's like, the, it's, the, it's the greatest thing, right? And then we find out five or 10 years later that it wasn't the greatest thing. It was causing all kinds of things that we didn't expect. So to, to rush something like this vaccine and, and to apply it really as a giant experiment um, was was um, was problematic. And then for people to question it, as you said, physicians, anybody really that questioned it was was silenced. Uh, that's not what this country is about. And so um, free speech is critical to this kind of discourse for us to heal and to come back to the middle. And um, and the media played a part in in what we experienced and. Uh, and it created a, a bigger divide than I think um, would have happened had had we not had that experience. I mean, we were already moving towards the extremes, and now it's just another example of how um, I'm right, you're wrong, um, pointing the finger, and um, and you know, seeing the other as some, some, someone or something different than ourselves. When, when we're all here in this country together, we're all on this planet together. We all come from mother earth. We're all connected. And for us to have this idea that we're getting farther and farther apart to me is, is something that I just can't get my head around. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I want to give each of you a chance to speak to this piece because it feels so central to what's really happening here and it feels like the conversation that we need to have after these past four years. I, I would almost love to reserve every other topic and spend the next like eight hours and or just literally like spend the rest of my life just sitting here with an open like Zoom room and have anybody that wants to come on and just unpack what's inside of them as they make their way back to each other. You know, like that's really the call here. And again, healing healing, even healing the perception of divide, because the reality is in the deepest sense, we're never divided from ourselves, from each other, from whatever we hold as, you know, this great mystery. So when we're acting as if we are, it really does generate this suffering. And so, and that said, it doesn't need to all be mono and the same. And so how do we hold our pluralities, um, you know, in a way that honors our, our deeper connection and I, I hold this in my own journey as individuation without separation and how important that is. So I want to offer you each an opportunity to speak to, um, to this topic um, in your own words. So let's hop over to, we'll go Jane, 
Jerry, Vanessa. Hey, hi again. Um, I first want to pretty much echo almost everything both Scott and Lance said. Um, I could not agree anymore in terms of, you know, for me, that was really when 2020 happened, that was what I felt was like the great awakening for the country and the world in terms of what I keep referring to as this sinister plot and plan going on in the background that led to this totalitarianism, authoritarianism, which it was just, it, it was the gateway drug, right? For the government to continue to take more and more liberties away from the people, more and more autonomy away from the people. And I might sound like a broken record, but from the very beginning, I've just been talking about returning rights to the American people, right? Like the government should not be in charge of telling us what to do. Um, I think, you know, I was fortunate to be, uh, to be in Florida um, where we did have rights and we did have our, um, you know, movement return to our state much quicker than other states. Um, but the damage that was done to the country as a result of it and the damage that still continues on. Um, we talked a lot about the media and, uh, you know, the fear porn. And, you know, it. I feel bad for people um, who aren't critical thinkers or for people who don't have the ability to be critical thinkers. Um, Jerry touched on it earlier when we were talking about, you know, there is no fair and balanced news source anymore. And, you know, people just become zombies and they're fed this information and it drives, um, you know, it, it drives the fear in them. And I think it kind of pulls them away from truth. You know, it was interesting at the time um, I had just started uh, with Live Golf and we travel to countries all over the world. And um, unfortunately, I was not able to enter these countries unless I was vaccinated. And it put me in a situation where I had to make a, a decision for my family. I'm a single mom and um, my income is the only income. Uh, so I had to make a decision. Do I get vaccinated to keep my job so that I can travel into these other countries that are making it a requirement? Or do I hold the line? Um, and unfortunately, and it is still something that eats at me every day to this day, I had to make the decision to go and get vaccinated um, to keep my job. And for me, it's like an unforgivable offense from the government and from the world, basically, of creating this fear porn for this larger machine, this larger animal that, you know, Lance alluded to, you know, was this, you know, in support of big pharma? Was it in support of a larger kind of new world order that, you know, we're trying to, I mean, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I think any of these paths could be the truth. I don't think any of us really truly know what the truth is behind all of this. I think any of it's possible. Um, but it's, it's something that I'm going to have to live with for the rest of my life. I, I didn't have a choice. Um, fortunately, the school that my daughter went to uh, was a Catholic school, and so they did not require vaccinations. So that is something I um, I thank my lucky stars for every single day, that she was not forced um, to be vaccinated. Uh, but yeah, something I'm going to have to live with for the rest of my life. And 
who knows what the consequences of it are. Um, I try to make the the best choice for myself at the time. There were three vaccines available and I chose, you know, Lance, you can speak to it better than I can. The, the one, the J&J that I don't think was the mRNA vaccine. It was a different type of vaccine. So I chose that one. And um, luckily I haven't had any side effects that I know of to this day, but um, who knows what happens five, 10, 15 years down the road. Jane, thank you so much for sharing your personal story and the vulnerability. I can feel my heart hurting. It's like, you know, whether you're pro or anti, any of it, where you stand, that sense of you have to do this. I am, that that's that doesn't feel to me, personally speaking, again, like the what I learned growing up were the core values of of this country. I understand when people were coming to it from a well-meaning standpoint, but man, this is some really touchy territory. And I think the second layer of this is not only could it be like do or, or is it a situation of do I do this or do I not do this and and being forced in this instance, but to even speak out against it, it is is not just a sense of like will I be deplat like I don't think that that um, you know my reach is big enough that I'm on any social media company's radar, but we begin to self-censor because of cancel culture. We begin to fear if I speak up and use my voice, you know, and I went through this, I share, I, I expect or assume anybody remembers this, but I didn't use my social media platforms to speak my thoughts and feelings about this issue and, um, and opened up a few frenzies, whether it was on so, like social protests or vaccines. And I did feel and see it, it negatively impact um, my business. It negatively impacted my friendships, um, and that that w- and I could see why a lot of people would reach out to me. But that was really brave. I'm not willing to do it. I don't want to experience those risks. And my heart breaks because what's happening as a people, as a as a as a country, when. The, the when free speech isn't just taken from us, but we willingly give it up. Scott, if I may just add one thing to that that I think is relevant for this conversation is when you had asked me if I would join this group, um, I had to have a conversation with my family, with my partner about whether or not it was safe for me to come out publicly as a Trump supporter. And what that would mean, what repercussions I would face as a result of that. You know, is there some type of government in the future that retaliates against people who were publicly supporting the opposite candidate? Um, You know, it was something that we had a serious conversation about whether or not it was safe for me. And, you know, I don't think people who aren't Trump supporters or people who aren't anti-vaxxers or whatever you want to call it really truly understand what you just talked about. Like Mm. it it is a fear. I don't publicly talk about my political leanings. I don't wear a MAGA hat around. I don't put a Trump sticker on my car, you know, for fear of violence, attacks, retaliation. Um, And I think that is a a huge problem. You know, we, we should all be able to have free speech, express our opinions and have open dialogue without f- fear of violence or retaliation in this country. 
Absolutely. Like the, and, and that's the thing when we disagree, it's like, I fight for your viewpoint that I disagree with, not against it. I fight for it. I, I want to live in a, in a world where you disagree with me and can say it. And I want to hear it and I don't want to attack you for it. I don't want you to have negative consequences for it. That is the unique goal and promise of, of, of this nation that in so many ways felt like it was getting stripped away personally. Jerry would love to hear your thoughts. You know, when I was, when I was listening to Lance and Scott talk about the COVID issue and you had censorship versus free speech involved in that, I thought a little bit about it and I had the COVID vaccine three times. I did it because for me, it was the right thing to do. Just internally, it was the right thing for me to do. Notwithstanding the Surgeon General saying no or DeSantis saying no, for me, it's what I wanted um, for a variety of reasons internally. Yeah. I was also thinking about censorship versus free speech in the larger context of things. And the, and the United States, our country, has essentially a life of its own. And with all kinds of diverse interests and thoughts. Anti-Semitism on campus is something that I oppose and I stand up to it and I out it because it's the right thing for me to do. Banning books was an anathema to me, harking back to Nazi Germany because it's a terrible thing to do for me. There are some people who support banning books, but it's not for me. And I, I think that of the beauty of the United States is that the core values of the average person is ingrained in how they feel and how they see things. And I think that this concept of of censorship and free speech on campus is something that everybody can kind of get behind. There will be discussions, there will be debate. Um, but the beauty of what we were talking about is the core values of who we are, who we are as a people, who we are as an individual, how we relate to other people, people with opposite political views. Um, and, and for me, it's a good thing. And I've told you before, patience is a virtue. And I believe that if you listen quietly, thoughtfully, and come to a decision that works for you, then that's what you do. Um, my question for you as an as a follow up is I hear you stand up against the anti-Semitism on college campuses. And do you, where do you draw the line with free speech? With free speech? Is it at hate speech? Is hate speech free speech? Where do you stand on that? Well, for me it's easy, easy at least for me, is that Free speech is fine. Free speech is free. It's the core of the United States. It was in our Constitution. And that's how our, our country was formed. But when free speech or speech, just speech, creates violence, then that no longer becomes free. And when you have a situation where a, an, a, an institution, uh, a a university fails to monitor that, 
saying, oh, it's free speech. So we don't have to do anything. And violence results. Then the institution is to blame. And that you, that again, free speech that, or speech that begets violence is no longer free. Now, how you judge that is the debate that we all have. Whether or not uh, anti-Semitic speech begets other anti-Semitic speech, that may be free speech. But if it creates a way of creating violence, then you're just going to have to step up to the plate and say, this is not what we believe is free speech. Free speech or speech, I keep saying free, speech that hurts us is no longer free speech. And maybe there has to be a dialogue on that level. How do you define it? Um, But I think that in many ways it's internal. If you're Jewish, free speech is pretty, pretty bad. For people who are atheists or whatever, they have a more expansive version of free speech. Um, but that's a discussion of the debate that this country should have. I couldn't agree more. I think it, I think it requires more time, more nuance, um, because it, it, who's the arbiter? And as soon as we hand over that trust for somebody to then just say, you know, for example, that's malinformation. So we're going to censor you. Um, you know, it's not even it's not even misinformation. It's just that's bad information. It says, well, it might be somebody protesting rights. I mean, we can get we can start diving into Israel Palestine a little bit, but um, it's it's interesting. Like, is is the cure for for bad information to shut it down or to add more information? Do we even need to argue for truth, or can we just elucidate it through free speech, through conversation? When does rhetoric cross over into behavior? And, and so, and then you start to put it in different contexts. If it wasn't Judaism, if it was, you know, kill all women, kill all black people, kill all trans people, kill all conservative, you know, like all of a sudden it's like, well, that's still just rhetoric, but would we allow it in the different social norms and mores of the time that we find ourselves in? Are we applying these things um, equally or are we putting them into their own um, compartments and favoriting, you know, one over the other? So I think these are the, these are the issues. Um, Vanessa, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, yeah, sure. So I think we've we've really shown in this conversation um, something that's central to my belief, which is that everything is very systemic. So we started talking about vaccines. We moved to censorship, Israel-Palestine. We can do all these things. And, and I think <clears throat> so many of these component pieces are truly related to one another. So from a COVID perspective, I think there's there's components where I too travel for work and needed to get the vaccine to travel. And I am my sole supporter. And at the time, like needed to keep working. Um, and I dealt in the last year with a very uh, mysterious health issue, um, which did not turn out to be COVID related. But I have to be honest that that was a rabbit hole that I dove down to say, was this related to COVID? Was this related to the vaccine? Nobody can figure this out. Like, where do I go? How do I get information that isn't sort of readily available? 
Um, and so I think when we look at those things, it starts the polarization of a lot of the, the eventual topics we've sort of forayed into, um, because we did have this, this need to, um, protect our health, however we thought it best to protect our own health. But we also had this emergence, I'll say, of, of, um, lack of care. I don't care what you say. I'm sick. I'm going to the grocery store. I don't care what you say. You need to put a mask on. I don't, right. And it became this, how can we force our beliefs or how can we be so dismissive of other people and their health or their situations that we have now, um, you know, have something that we can all kind of link back to to say like, oh, I, I believe this or I believe that and therefore I will act this way or that way. I also think it's systemic that we as a country don't have high quality health care or sick days and time available for people to stay home when they're sick. And if people could stay home when they're sick and they had fair pay and they had the things they needed to do to survive, they wouldn't be in a situation where they were forced to, to make these decisions that weren't great for themselves or for other people. And so I think COVID was really a place where we had this uh, varying levels of belief that we are a country of we, and COVID really showed that we are a country of me's. It is, it is about me. It is about my belief. It is not about you. It is not about the person in front of me or next to you at the grocery store. And that's really troubling uh, because that's not how we create the unity that we're talking about here um, in those ways by saying like, my way is the right way and I'm going to cough on you or I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that, right? Because I can. I think the other thing when we talk about COVID is that it was, it was a, uh, an apex of identifying what I'll outright call hypocrisy. We talk about medical autonomy and you don't want to be told to take a vaccine. You don't want to do this. Those very same people are talking about stripping women of their rights, stripping libraries of their books, changing autonomous relationships across a variety of landscapes, not just particularly COVID related. And that's where I think you started to see the eruption of, of finger pointing and ad hominem and all of this, because it was really challenging to understand and I, I would love to understand how medical autonomy for a vaccine is one thing, but medical autonomy when my body is at risk of delivering a baby is something completely different without bringing religion into it, right? So I think this is the, the, the experience of 2020 started to bubble these things to the surface in a way that hopefully would have started to expose and encourage conversation and instead it exposed and created division. And then I think that lends itself to is, is your content, your words, should those be censored? Should those qualify as free speech if it's different than what I believe? And I don't think that's the case, right? I think we should all be able to speak. And, and Jerry, I really um, appreciate your approach of if speech incites violence. And is that a way to kind of draw that line in the sand? But I think that's where we started to see the more um, grasping of censorship to say, I don't agree with this thing that really divided the world in many ways. And now I'm going to censor what you say because I don't like it, or I'm going to censor what you say because I don't think it's scientifically accurate, or I'm going to censor what you say because it doesn't align with my beliefs. And I don't think that's a productive um, thing to have happened. I think it set us back in ways where it really could have propelled us forward differently if we had some 
honest conversation in some pretty specific lanes around what it means to be a a country and a society and and the way we interact with people and what it means to be able to make decisions about our own health and what it means to be able to speak freely about things that we disagree with, with respect. And I think that last piece is ardently missing from a lot of the dialogue that developed from 2020. Thank you so much, Vanessa, for sharing that so articulately. There are two things I want to pull out of what I heard you share. Um, The first is in the collective identity and the individual identity. And to there is a point where where, when we're only concerned about our own self-interest, that it's hard to survive as a society and community. And I... I, I deeply value that. So on one end of the spectrum, we have self-interest at the expense of the collective. And then it seems like a, there was a lot of buy-in to just do like the propaganda machine felt like for me, it, it, the train went full throttle when it's like, be part of the community, especially if I can first move to lockdown where it generates isolation and out of isolation, there's loneliness, depression anxiety. And now here's a way to come back into connection and care about the whole and do this regardless of if it's your view or not. And so everyone's just sort of like mass is shuffling in. Now it's collectivism at the expense of the individual. When I look at the promise of this nation in our founding documents, the to me, I see, again, this is just personal subjectivity here, um, that the collective promise is one of personal subjective sovereignty that if i want to stand for the collective the the most powerful thing that i can advocate for is the rights of individuals and and so when it started to get and this is nuance but when it started to get pulled out and say stop just caring about yourself care for the whole i'm like my caring about the whole is me standing up for my right to have my voice. And then I could start to see what was happening with this medical autonomy hypocrisy that you mentioned. But what I saw as I really stepped back into witness consciousness to really the space that I think Lance was speaking to earlier was you could play that both ways. You could say to, to a, um, to, to, to uh, let's say conservative leaning person that was, I'm going to do broad brushstrokes here. Um, I don't want to be vaccinated. Don't my body, my choice. Don't tell me what to do. And then I, and then say, well, then why are you telling me what I can't do with my body when it comes to, a, to reproductive rights? Um, and then you could, you could then flip that and say to the democratic person, the, oh, let's say liberal minded, broad brushstroke speaking, why are you saying my my body, my choice over here, but now it doesn't apply over there? And so it's sort of the typical shadow projection. I'm gonna I'm gonna deflect and call you a hypocrite. Well, we're both doing the same thing, and we're just doing this back and forth dance. Um, I could see. I think you know, abortion and is it's it's one of these really big issues when we because you know I hear from the conservative side 
sure, your body, your choice, but it's not just your body. There's another body here too. And when does, and, and, and so then I'm like, oh, wow, yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And then I hear, I'm a woman, don't tell me like what I can and cannot do with my body. Man, that's a really good point here too. As I raise my children and, and we talk about these things, I say, let's not demonize either. There's no evil monster here that you can, if you really think about both sides of this issue, you can understand why the person that has the perspective they have is actually operating from a sense of morality. So to conflate your view with your value, with your values and your value systems and say, that's immoral. It's like, how about we just go, there's, there's a reason this has been an issue to the degree that it has to the depth and duration that it has, because it's a very sensitive issue. And as we can start to talk about it without the ad hominem and without the calling each other out as hypocrites and doing that, that do si do, we can then go, well, maybe is it at a certain week that, you know, and, and so I think that this is, it's important for us to be able to talk about these things. Um, and I love that we are right now. I think we're modeling that right now. So these are some of the things I hear uh, in me come up as I listen to what you shared. I want to give you a moment to respond. Yeah, I just, my only response, Scott, is a thank you for um, fleshing out further the my comment on hypocrisy. I did not do it justice by only sharing one of those perspectives because you're absolutely correct. Um, there needs to be a place where, um, it is not just everybody is telling me to mask, but when it comes to this, my body, my choice, or everyone's telling me my body, my choice when it comes to a mask, but when it comes to this, it's not your choice. So I really appreciate you further elucidating that because I failed to. Thank you. Thanks for hearing me. Wow. We're doing it, guys. We're doing it. Um, Jane, I could feel <laughs> there's some things that maybe want to be spoken. Am I, am I tapping in? Oh, no, it's just the, the the whole conversation about abortion is just, um, you know, as a woman, I feel like I am in a position to be able to have an opinion on it. Um, and I think you you nailed my perspective to the fullest of it. It is my body, my choice, but there is another body involved as well. And I think, again, similar to like what Jerry was talking about with free speech is like, there is nuance and context with all of it. There is no blanket to say that like, well, abortion is right 100% of the time or abortion is wrong 100% of the time. You know, there are circumstances, you know, I think Vanessa alluded to earlier in the conversation about, you know, if something traumatic or horrible happened to you as a woman, should you have the right to be able to have an abortion? And, and I agree with that fully. Do I agree with, full-term or late-term abortions? Absolutely not. You know, I think there's, I think there's nuance here. I think there's context and I, I do, it goes back to what I've been saying all along, give the rights back to the people. So whether it's free speech, whether it's abortion, but there still does have to be some set of guardrails in place. But Scott, going back to your point, who's the arbiter of those guardrails, right? And when you put government in charge of it, you know, that just creates less autonomy and more government intervention. So, you know, I don't know what the right answer is. Um, and, you know, talk, going back again to is Israel-Palestine, I mean, Jerry, I could not agree more. There is no space in this country for hate towards any religion, let alone the Jewish religion. And what has happened on these college campuses 
in the last couple of months has been appalling and disgusting. And I have found myself when I do turn on the news in shock that it is 2024 and that this is happening when the Holocaust and, you know, World War II was not that long ago, right? It was within our generation. How are we back here again? Um, so, you know, there, there are so many things, I think, having this conversation that we all have common ground on. And I think if we kind of take it and say, you know, I think, Scott, you alluded to it being systemic. It's not about just the one thing. If we take this approach of, well, free speech is free up until a point, until it incites violence, I think you can apply that same um, conversation to abortion, just as one example, right? And I think you can apply that same conversation to COVID and vaccines. Um, so again, I, I don't know who makes those decisions um, and where they lie, but it's a conversation, I think, ultimately hearing everybody that we all agree on. Um, so I, I find that really, really fascinating. It's incredibly refreshing. This is this is amazing. I just want to kind of step back before diving back in, which is to say that the capacity to say I am here and I am listening, just that alone is a game changer to create the conditions for conscious dialogue to emerge. Because I think if I again I go back to if I was in a coaching session with somebody or a group of people and we were navigating conflict, we would apply these same principles. We would just say, I'm here to listen to understand what your experience is. Obviously it's been different than mine. How can I come into your country, your world, your life journey and understand what your experience has been? And then from there, we can begin to work towards each other. Right now, there's so much conflict happening, especially when we look at this. Um, the, I don't even want to say the Israel-Palestine conflict anymore. I just want to call it what it is, which is really a war. And from the proxy levels, there's a lot more involvement of country, other countries already. And so I would love to take a moment to hear from um, let's go to Jerry first, because you presenced at the beginning that support for Israel, Palestine, or for Israel and Ukraine, I'm sorry, were paramount to um, the, the central issues of our day and moving our country forward. I think there's something unique here that in each of these three candidates, and, and I say Biden with a slash and some parentheses of like a, a fill in the blank of Personally, I don't think Biden is going to end up being the Democratic Party's candidate. Um, and I think those conversations are in the works. So whoever steps into that, Trump and RFK are all pro, I don't even want to say Israel, pro-Israeli government, Benjamin Netanyahu policy right now. And while much of the world and a lot of the U.S. Um, citizenry is looking at what's happening, not um, at October 7th in a vacuum, but what were the conditions that led up to it and what has been the nature of Israel's response, um, not just to Hamas, but to the citizens of Gaza, where over 30,000 um, people have now died, 100,000 injured, 20,000 
women and children, uh, a decimation of the entire society, every mosque, every university, um, people starving, um, that, uh, you know, and, and, and people are really sort of seeing pictures of this, um, in, you know, depending again on those algorithms, um, you know, it's pretty intense to see, um, and without like hyper macroing it to the point of, well, this is my position. It's like, well, these are people. Can we start with what Lance was saying? We're all humans. Is there a different way to do it? But, but when I look to the, to the candidates that this is really going to come down to the democratic candidate, Trump and RFK most likely. And I do think we need to elevate RFK to like a legitimate option and not just keep that narrative. Like Vanessa was saying, like, this is, Oh, it's a, it's a, you know, just taking away from this one or that one, a wasted vote. I think this is an opportunity to Lance's point as well, that maybe we can break this stronghold, not because like maybe Jerry's like, I'm of the Democratic Party. Great. But can we have more options instead of a monopoly? But even with RFK in the race as that third voice or Trump as being this anti-establishment, there doesn't seem to be somebody that is not necessarily pro I don't think anybody's going to come in as like pro Hamas necessarily, but, but is even advocating for the Palestinian people's experience until maybe the last two weeks, I've seen a little bit of the rhetoric of a policy shift from the Biden administration. So um, I'd love to hear Jerry first on this and Lance, your screen. uh, (laughs) So you're sideways on us. Perfect. Thank you so much. Uh, Jerry. And Lance, sorry, if you don't mind muting as well. Well, it's interesting, um, this whole Israel-Palestine issue. Um, Both parties, all parties, want and support Israel's right to exist as a Jewish state. It's pretty much a foregone conclusion. How you go about that is very, very complicated. For me, again, I always have supported Israel. I've lobbied for him, uh, for the Democratic Party. But I oppose Netanyahu's government because, in my mind, it doesn't reflect the average Israeli citizen. That plus, there's almost a huge discrimination against Arab West West Bank uh, people from right-wing governments who want in Israel all the way to the Red Sea. And that's just wrong. It just won't happen. So as much as Biden or Trump or RFK want to fix this, it's just not going to get fixed. You could get a two-state solution, assuming that the West Bank and Palestine is demilitarized. You have to pull the Israeli settlers out of the West Bank and back to Israel. That's more tribal than anything else. If you remember, Arabs and uh, Jews lived for thousands of years. We had the Quran. We have the Torah. It's just like that. It's just very difficult to put these two hearts together, even though all Arabs and Jews are Semitic uh, by race. That's who we we were. But I think think it's going to be another hundred years before Palestine gets modernized and works in, co- in, in competition with Israel economically. And uh, 
it might also benefit Saudi Arabia and Egypt to help modernize the Gaza Strip and um, and um, the West Bank. It's difficult. This is all very difficult to try and figure out how to make this work. And all of us want to make it work. But the problem is that, as you say, thousands and thousands of people are dying on both sides. And again, as I said before, the United States, our society, is very much human. So on October 7, where there was this horrendous massacre by Arabs against Jews, it was like the new Holocaust. And that gets ingrained in their DNA. And forgiving is is not in the cards right now. Um, you know, Netanyahu has a political aspect to this. In my opinion, it doesn't work for the Israeli people. Uh, but I think for anything to get better, they have to have a change in government in the same way that we have a change in government. And, and without opposing anything, the Netanyahu government is very similar to the Trump government. It's authoritarianism and it's over the top, so to speak. And so there has to be some mitigation on the Israeli government to make it more democratic and, and uh, more accepting of a real peaceful solution. Thank you for sharing. I'd like to go, um, if you don't mind muting, Jerry, and then let's go to uh, Lance and then over to, to Jane. I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond to the, um, really the, this notion of, of uh, Trump's, uh, if, if, if you, how you hold response to Trump as authoritarianism, uh, or or do you see the Biden administration as a, how, how do you, would you respond to Jerry? I'd love to get to, into that. But Lance, I'd specifically love to know, um, so for personally speaking, again, I'd like to just be clear when I'm being in objectivity and subjectivity. I think that's important, especially in the role of, of host, but being human as well. Um, so I'll, I'll share my perspective is, it, I am an RFK supporter in this mix, so um, <clears throat> I've had a hard time reconciling my support of RFK with what has felt like there needed to be more understanding of, um, for the plight of the Palestinian people in um, in, in his approach to this issue. Um, and I say that with somebody with you know, Jewish ancestry and, um, and deep recognition and agreement with a lot of what Jerry said is as well. And I think, yeah, it's just been really, it's, it's, it's like, I, I hear him in so many spaces step in and, um, and, and, and speak against what feels like the, um, traditional historical establishment position, um, and so how I, I, I agree, Jerry, that I, my hope is um, for the Israeli people to live in freedom, um, in safety. And, it, and it's the same for the Palestinian people, right? I think for all of us, it's the same for all people. We want that. Um, I think in some of the lead up to 10-7, um, we have to unpack that more to really understand what the Palestinian people have been living under. And also, this is not an issue just of Israel and Palestine. This is 
all over the world, there's issues of, you know, we'll, we'll get in my next podcast actually is about colonization and really breaking that down um, in both action and in consciousness. And then the last week's episode was an interview with um, a woman in Israel uh, from Israel, like she broadcasted from Israel. Uh, she was a social worker in the Israeli army and she supports troops coming out of combat to work through their trauma using yoga and meditation and healing tools. So I recommend all of our listeners to check out both of those um, if you want to go deeper into particular content. But Lance, um, do you have that same inner battle with RFK? And then Jane. Uh, yes, you said it perfectly, Scott. When I said in my opening remarks, you know, I love almost everything he says. Um, that's one that I had challenges with as well. And it's not that I don't support um, Israeli people. It's not that I don't support uh, people having the ability to choose their religious um, beliefs and, and practices. Um, it's that I believe that is the case for everyone. And, and I agree with you that I, I think there was an opportunity there for him to, um, like he does on most issues, in my opinion, uh, find a middle ground. Uh, but, uh, you know, Vanessa, you were talking about this cognitive dissonance with, you know, uh, well, I don't want to have a vaccine and I don't think someone else should have an abortion. Uh, to me, they are exactly the same fundamental issue is the government was um, was taking a stance historically on abortion um, with legislation and then more, you know, sort of not, not necessarily with a law enacted, but but with a lot of pressure to uh, to um, have something done medically that was, in my opinion, only a discussion between a patient and a physician, right? That for all of these discussions, right? And so when 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 we enacted a law that said this medical procedure that should be between a patient and a and a and a physician should be a private conversation and a medical decision, when we said that that should be um, legal or illegal doesn't matter um, was incorrect. And even um, you know the honorable uh, Justice Ginsburg uh, felt the same way, I believe. So I think they're the same, right? Like we can all find these evidences of, of, of where we believe one thing and then the other, exactly the opposite, but a similar scenario. For me, this idea of, um, of a closed state uh, of, of one country and then on, on maybe the same news feed or, or in the same speech, uh, someone will talk about open borders on the, on the southern half of the United States. To me, you can't argue both of those things at the same time because they're in complete opposition of each other. So if we believe that we should have open borders, then we should have open borders everywhere. And if we believe that we should have closed borders, we should have closed borders everywhere. So um, I, I think th these are just other examples of how we pick and choose uh, as individuals what we want to believe and what we want to focus on and what issue is important to us. And so anyone that can that can create a, a space to have a conversation about these kind of topics and, and, and to point out some of those discrepancies um, and to figure out what is our stance as individuals and as a, as a population on things I think is critical. So uh, I agree. I, I think, you know, his, he, he's controversial, right? RFK is controversial. I love that about him because I think controversy is what sparks conversation. 
And I think he had an opportunity to um, to make a different uh, stance, more in the middle and more about the lives of everyone involved in this. And, and he didn't do that. And that was one area where he, you know, in if I had my perfect candidate that I could create in my mind, they would have had a different approach to that particular question and that that conversation. The other thing I just want to say before we turn it over to Jane is, you know, I think we have, you know, like I said at the beginning, we've become the police of the world and and you know, our involvement in any of these conflicts is is taking away from our what our priorities need to be, which is rebuilding the the culture and the and the vision of what we're going to be as a country because right now that's a big part of our identity is is we are arguably involved in destabilization of uh, foreign governments. And then we become the police to mop up the messes that we created in many cases. And, and that's one thing that, that I just can't get behind any candidate who, who believes that, that we are the police of the world. You know, one more cognitive dissonance you know, defund the police was a, was going on during the COVID time, um, mainly from a, a liberal approach. Well, let's talk about defunding the biggest police force in the world, the U.S. military that, you know, we spend more than the next nine countries in the world combined. Um, it's it's ludicrous. So if we're going to defund the police, let's start with the biggest police force in the world. Thank you, Lance. You were kind of going like we were in the same mental current evidently because I have my list of talking points and you just hit the next two or three, which we weren't going to have time for. So I was like, Oh, this is fantastic that you're touching on them. Thank you so much. Because when we hand it off to Jane, I'd love for you to pick up that thread and weave it a little bit around really what is, you know, it's one thing for us to sit down and say, well, I think Israel should take this stance or that stance. I wish my candidates not this way or that way, but what is our role versus what is our opinion is a very different question. So when we look at U.S. foreign policy over these last, call it even 20 years, we'll just work within that frame, um, the, you know, even 25 years, maybe through, you know, going back into um, Iraq, going into Kuwait, and then going obviously through, you know, September 11th, and um, you, you had kind of started there. Um, but that all also didn't happen in a vacuum. And there is a sense of globalism, of nation building and intervention in foreign affairs that impacts our resources. It seems to me like it foments anti-American sentiment. It, it, it generates the issue that we say we're fighting um, and, then, and then justifies the expense and then the and the ethnocentric ideologies that um, further perpetuate it. So, how do you hold that, Jane? And what do you view the the a healthy role for the United States in foreign affairs? Yeah, I agree one hundred percent with Lance that we should not be the police of the world. Um, Again, going back to, you know, Trump's campaign is America first. I think we need to look inwards. I think there's um, plenty of people who are suffering. I know Vanessa alluded to it um, early on in the discussions. There are people that are hungry. There are those without, you know, shelter. There are those without, you know, that are living in subpar living conditions. Um, I think we need to, to focus on ourselves. I think in terms of my opinion on international affairs, I don't feign to understand the depth of the um, 
of the conflict that has been going on for thousands of years in countries that I really don't know that much about. So, you know, I wouldn't want somebody from the Ukraine or Israel uh, making judgment or decisions on what's happening within Florida, you know, what's happening with, uh, within our legislation. And I don't think we have a right or a privilege to be dictating what's right and wrong. So, I mean, I believe in what's right and wrong from a human level, like we talked about. I don't think that anybody should be hurting anybody else. I don't think that war, murder, genocide in in any form is ever justified. Um, but I'm not going to get involved. You know, that's that's for them to have discussions and and figure out. And I'm just on the side of humanity. I think if that makes if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for speaking your truth in that. And just checking in with time that um, it went by really fast. I would love to give everybody an opportunity in closing on a couple of fronts. First and foremost, is there anything left lingering that you're holding that you want to speak into this conversation um, and, and have live on this podcast for people to um, to sit with, to give you a moment to just contemplate um, what that might be. Um, the next part two to that, uh, I thought this might be kind of fun, is if it were up to you, who would your candidate's um, VP running mate be? And if you are a Democratic Party supporter here in this race, um, I'm going to give you a, a, a second one of those where if it's not Biden, who would your presidential nominee be and they're your preferred VP to partner with them? So that all said, we'll uh, hand this closing round off to Vanessa to lead us in. Thanks, Scott. I think there's a couple of things that I would uh, say in closing and, and, you know, to live immortal in this podcast, so to speak, is that as folks are listening to this and wrapping up to encourage them to go out and have these kind of conversations. And I am open to, and often do as, as Scott, you know, like postings on my Instagram. And I do that with the acknowledgement that I want it to start dialogue. And in the last few weeks, I've seen more and more and more people start dialogue with very differing views kind of all over the gamut. But the thing that I've gotten to is that there is not a candidate that really represents what I think we've even shown in this, you know, couple of hours we've been together, that there is a middle ground. It is not absolutism one way or the other. And so what I'm leaving with and what sits in my mind today is how can we start to demand that of the people that we put in power? How can we start to look at balance and moderation and not what makes the best, you know, five word headline to create that division as we continue to go forward? And, and how do we um, actually put into action what we expect of people? Because we deserve as an American people to have a government led by and representative of the, the majority of the United States. And I have to tell you, like what our Congress looks like today 
House, State, Senate, the whole thing. Like it, it's not representative of many factors of the United States today. And, and that's where we get to um, these laws and these approaches that are not necessarily for the people um, and certainly not in the moderation that it requires to be human um, and to live. And so I think all of those things are things that we need to start considering uh, about our candidates. And I think I would also offer that for those folks who do leave here and say, hey, I want to talk about this more. Awesome. And know that it's not going to be easy. Know that it's going to make you think differently. And that's okay. I've learned so much from this conversation. And I want to go off and think about things differently. I want to look at RFK in particular as a different um, approach to, to a Democratic candidate. And so I think we should know change is good and change is expected. And, and it's okay when you learn more and you change your mind or you learn better and you do better, right? So that's sort of my lasting uh, commentary there. I think for me with, um, a, if I had to pick like a true democratic candidate, there's a couple that come to mind. Um, in 2016, I really loved um, Amy Klobuchar or 2020 rather. I loved Amy Klobuchar. I think she's got a really balanced viewpoint. Um, it's, I have family in Minnesota. It's really hard pressed to get anything bad out of people uh, about Amy, which I think is really impressive. Um, I think in a, in a number of years, I would say Pete Buttigieg, because I think he's got some really strong infrastructure approaches that will do a lot of what Trump is talking about doing it and did, quite frankly, during his administration about bringing things back into America, making our country solid on our own uh, and the ability to stand on our own two feet. So I think if I had to, I would pick Amy and Pete. If I had a backup, I would pick Gretchen Whitmer for president and uh, Dean Phillips for VP. Thank you. Thank you for your for all that you shared on on this episode. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Let's go to Jerry. I would uh, I would second Vanessa's choice. Amy Klobuchar she is spectacular. She's extremely bright and um, and um, well known, and uh, basically supports all of the things that I support with uh, Joe Biden. Um, I, I've been thinking a little bit about. The, the the problem with elderly people running for president, being at um, Joe Biden at 81, 82, and uh, Trump at 78. I remember back in the day with FDR and Truman and Reagan all being older people that we looked up more like a father figure uh, back in those days. Now it's a totally different situation. Uh, we need smart men and women in their 50s and early 60s who have a more modern look at how we govern and how we lead the country. And and I think that it relates to younger voters because younger voters are now getting turned off by old people. And and I understand that. So um, I guess in 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 retrospect, I'm harking back to a younger, more modern, kind of like Macron um, or Trudeau, all of these uh, in guiding our country. And the last thing I want to talk about real quickly is woman's right to choose. I think we could do a whole podcast on that one issue, not from the politics of it, but from the woman's perspective 
and the man's perspective. If you look at a woman's right to choose, both Republicans and Democrats support this overwhelmingly. But it is such a personal decision. It is so important to women to be able to have control of their own body, to make decisions about their body. And and it's like slavery if government says, you will do this. You will not uh, terminate. You must deliver. It was kind of like China's three children policy back in the day. It's so important. And it's so important, not just to women, but to men and to other children. And it and it's really something that's got to get right. That's it. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you for sharing your your views and your spirit. Appreciate you being here. Um, we'll hand it off to Lance. Thank you, and I apologize for all the technical stuff. I live out in the country, as Scott knows, in New Mexico, and my, my service is not fantastic. So I apologize if I was a distraction uh, to any of you or to any of the viewers or listeners. Um, I think, you know, what I would close with is what I would ask people to consider is to spend as much time and energy in being what you're for than being against what you're against. And I, it may not, that may not sound different, um, but to me, it's really different. And so I think being being clear about what we each believe and why is so much more important than trying to prove the other wrong. All of these things come down to conversations just like this. And um, and again, I'm excited about the possibility of a candidate that is getting support for voters under 45, that is getting a lot of support from independents, that has a higher favorability rating than either the other two candidates in some polls. Uh, depends on where you look, of course. But I'm excited about the possibility that we can begin to maybe have a path. Maybe he doesn't get elected, um, but but this could be a path to, uh, you know, three, four, five viable candidates in future elections so that we really have significant choice. And, you know, asking the question of who I would um, want as, as uh, RFK's VP. One person that comes to mind that I would love to see uh, helping guide our country. Her name came up earlier. Vanessa mentioned Marianne Williamson. Um, I love her. I think we have lost our way spiritually as a country. And I'm not talking about religion. I'm talking about the more broad spiritual connection. And she is an amazing spiritual teacher and could be an amazing spiritual guide to our country. Now, that being said, um, if he chose her, there's no chance. <laughs> I think she's too divisive, unfortunately. <laughs> Um, but that would be what I would like if I got to pick my ideal future. I think they'd make a great team. Uh, if if I had to pick someone that I thought would help him win, I don't have the answer to that question. I really don't know. But I do love the people that he's surrounding himself with. Um, Charles Eisenstein, I have high respect for him. Uh, and uh, Gavin DeBecker, you know, multiple people that he's surrounded himself with, I really respect. But I, I don't know, frankly, the answer to the question about who would be a great VP that could help him win. Thank you, Lance. Yeah, I, I resonate with a lot of what you shared um, on the RFK train. I'll go ahead and throw mine in. My choice would be Tulsi Gabbard. And I appreciate the different spaces she's lived 
rated and expressed from and advocated for. Um, I think she would maybe broaden the coalition enough to add that element, but also be aligned enough as well. Um, to me, that's kind of the sweet spot. Um, and uh, and it's funny when she was running as a Democratic presidential presidential nominee, I really enjoyed her. I said, like, "Why is she not getting enough press?" And then I watched her a lot of her um, evolution in thought, and it, and it just mirrored a lot of my own in in the last few years. Um, and so I, I that would be mine. And let's hand it off to Jane to close us out. I just wanted to, first of all, thank everybody for having this conversation and, and being open. It was um, it was really enlightening and really enjoyed speaking and, and getting to know all of you. Um, in terms of final thoughts, um, I recently reread 1984, and I would encourage all the listeners to go and do the same because it is eerily similar to what is happening um, in our country and throughout the world today. Um, we are truly living an upside down world. And I think until people are educated and informed um, and really do the critical thinking we discussed earlier, um, I think we're we're headed down a, a very scary path. You know, although, like I said at the beginning of the of the discussion about, you know, 9-11, obviously, is what brought us together, brought unity and brought the sense of Americanism and, you know, broke down the diversity um, or the division, rather, in the country. Um, I obviously don't wish for anything horrible to happen to us, but something needs to happen in order for us to remember that we are all Americans first within this country, and then on a global a global scale, we're all, we're all humans, right? Um, and then with that, with Trump's running mate, um, I am hoping for Vivek Ramaswamy, um, I absolutely love him. I think he's fresh. I think he's intelligent. I think he's also anti-establishment. Um, he has diversity. Um, he has a business background and um, he's fiery. And I think they would make an excellent team. Um, and that I'm hoping in 2028 for Ron DeSantis. So. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing, Jane. Yeah, I've really enjoyed the really meteoric rise of Vivek. I think he's been a um a necessary live wire and i think he has enrolled a lot of youth uh, back into um this current of conversation and uh, that would be that would be an amazing choice in in my personal view as well um, so all that said i think what has demonstrated itself here today to close is that when we collapse our identity into our beliefs, then when somebody has a different belief, we receive it as an attack on um, our identity to which we then defend by attacking their beliefs and then their identity. And that energy will then draw itself to itself like a magnet. And that's eating up most of the bandwidth in our current zeitgeist politically and socially. But what today has shown me is that when we don't establish identity in belief, then there is a space within us that is available for us to 
recognized a shared common identity of being human beings, sharing this rock in space for a little bit of time together. And that from that shared basis of humanity, there's then space for a plurality of differing beliefs to live within us, to have freedom to grow and change, to be questioned, to be explored, to be heard without defensiveness and attack. So the attack, blame, defend dynamic can be set down. It, it's not a choice between um, your right and uh, or or you're wrong i'm right and you're wrong and open power over but truly powerful to me is when we steep into the root of of who and what we fundamentally are as beings and we make space to commune and just feel free feel this is the place to feel genuinely free to say this is what's on my heart this is how i see this is my understanding my assessment, my goals, my wish, my dreams, my comprehension of what's occurring. How about you? And then, hey, that's cool. We can talk about it. We can talk about it. And if we can talk about it out of that experience, if we can hold space for one another to have the experience that they're having with validation, regardless of if there's agreement or not, validation does not require agreement, then this whole thing called us, this project called America can move forward. And then we don't need to nation build or anything. If that's a value, there's a, there's a natural virality to that. And I think there's power in that and there's groundswell in that. So regardless of what you believe, if you agree with me, you disagree with me, you share views or not, I so appreciate each of you for being here. And I appreciate everybody for listening, uh, for joining in. I hope that you found this podcast to be contributive and meaningful to you in some way. And we're going to keep it going. We're going to do more things like this. So I, I thank you, Lance, Vanessa, Jane, and Jerry for being with me today. Appreciate you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.